1: Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, Head of Economist Radio, and you're listening to The World in Ingenuity, the last of our three specials looking to the year ahead.
2: I've just received a call
0: from Secretary Clinton. But the British people have made a
3: very clear decision to take a different path.
1: Coming up in the programme, we'll be airing on the bright side of 2017, Investigating solutions we think are coming soon, from globalization.
2: So this past year, two billion people agreed that they would bring down any and all walls and barriers to migration.
4: Long-term trend, I think, is for technology to make it easier to trade goods and services across borders.
1: To protest.
5: And love Hong Kong. It's my country. And I will continue to fight for the future.
1: And finding some reasons for hope all over the world. I think
5: this is the year that
0: Islamic State Get kicked out of all their serious territorial possessions in Iraq.
2: My name may not be on the ballot, but our progress is on the ballot.
0: Tolerance is on the ballot. Democracy is on the ballot.
4: And I promise you that I will not let you down.
1: As usual, my companion for this last leg of my hitchhike with the world in 2017 supplement is Daniel Franklin, its editor, and our chief soothsayer. What are the problems, Daniel, that you think are being solved or perhaps beginning to lift as burdens from mankind?
3: Well, to take two reasons for optimism. One is um, a generational thing, I think. When you look at the young people that we have contributing their ideas to the world in 2017... Some of those are extraordinary, and they, they don't mind these forces of, of of disruption that are going on around them. They welcome them, they embrace them, and they see that as ways of bringing about positive change, and they're very confident of achieving it. Uh, and then there's just the sense that ideas, um, despite a degree of protectionism that is on the rise in various parts, ideas are flowing more freely than perhaps ever before in the world, and in, in a rather nice phrase of a former colleague of mine, ideas that flow around in this way and have sex with each other, they can be terribly, terribly creative.
1: I think one of the big battles that we'll be discussing in 2017 will be the march of globalisation. Stoppable or not?
3: Well, Donald Trump seems to be someone who would like to stop it. And I think the big question for 2017 is whether that is a Canute-like venture or are the forces that are propelling globalisation, which are um, technological, which are uh, generational, Are they forces that are really too powerful uh, and going to roll on despite political efforts to uh, put spanners in the works or to hold back the tide? Um, I I don't think the answer to that is as obvious as some people imagine. I think the forces that are propelling globalization are, are, are more powerful than people often realize.
1: Now, we wanted to peer at some of the trends for the 12 months to come from an Asian perspective, so we went to Hong Kong, Singapore and Beijing to speak to some key changemakers and thinkers in the region. Among them was Parag Khanna, an international relations expert, forecaster and strategist, whose focus is globalisation. Daniel, what's Parag's take?
3: Well, his take is that um, we're going to have more globalisation, not less, rather dramatically so, that the connectedness of the world is only moving in in one direction. Uh, And I think we're going to see uh, attempts to stop certain aspects of it, but beneath beneath the surface and perhaps more fundamentally, um, a lot of this connectedness is going to keep growing.
1: So Parad, future of globalisation has been your theme for some time now. How do you think the world can still become more globalised at a time when so many electorates seem to be rebelling against that idea?
2: Well, the world is relentlessly getting more and more connected, and connectivity is the foundation of globalization. Without the transportation, energy, and communications networks that allow globalization to flourish, we would be having a much more limited conversation. Now, on the topic of the so-called backlash of electorates, there is no backlash against globalization. That's a complete mischaracterization. It's not yours. It's everyone's mischaracterization in, in the media domain about what's going on right now. It's far too convenient uh, to almost mimic the lines of Donald Trump, uh, you know, and to say that this is against China, against Mexico, against trade. It's no such thing. Uh, And America's position even after uh, Trump is... uh, is, is uh, you know, inaugurated, is in all likelihood, given where American corporations lie on these issues versus his campaign platform, likely to prevail. What do they want? They want to be able to continue to invest abroad because that's where the markets are, right? They're going to continue to be lured abroad by foreign corporations. That's going to happen as well. But the bottom line is, if you ask the average American, do you want your t-shirt for $7 made in Vietnam or $70 made in uh, next door in Iowa, the answer is still going to be seven dollars made abroad.
1: But it might be that people want the fruits of globalization, as you describe, but are increasingly reluctant to accept the other consequences in terms of their jobs, in terms of incomers into their countries. Don't you spot that across the planet, whether we're looking at Europe at the moment and the rise of populist movements and indeed Mr. Trump?
2: Well, uh, since you use the words across the planet, I think we need to be clear about our geographic terms here. Sometimes in The Economist, my beloved uh, weekly uh, paper of record, I read articles that say walls are going up all over the world. Look at Britain and Serbia. Well, that's not exactly the planet Earth last time I checked. Since we're chatting here in Singapore, let me remind everyone that 5 billion people live in this neighborhood and that earlier this year, the point three or four billion uh, uh, population of Africa, all of their 50 heads of state got together and declared free visa mobility, right? Uh, ASEAN, this region where we sit right now, of 700 million people has just passed a labor mobility accord. So this past year, two billion people agreed that they would bring down any and all war- walls and barriers to migration. And a couple of million people did the opposite.
1: The tension between a desire for control and a, a sense of nationhood And globalisation and sometimes the liberal world outlook seems to have become perhaps more apparent as we look into 2017. You've spoken a lot about identity and how people need identity, given the flux of the world. How do we secure that within globalisation?
2: I very often hear people who represent the view that there is this you know, sacrosanct notion of a culturally homogenous nation state as the sole understanding of the word identity. And that's not the way the 70% of the world population that's under the age of you know, 30 or 40, the entire emerging markets developing world feels. Uh, BBC and Globescan did a, st- a survey at the end of last year, surveying young people from all across the planet, from rich countries, poor countries. Develop, developing, about whether or not they feel they have some sense of global identity. And greater than 50% of the respondents across these in demographics and geographies said, yes, I believe that in addition to whatever national identity I have, I have some sense of obligation to a global community. I believe in mobility. I believe in connectivity. I believe connectivity is a human right. Um, you know, all of these kinds of things that you would identify with an amalgamated and sophisticated and complex sense of identity that cannot be satisfied by simply saying, I want to retreat into my national identity. I have every sympathy with European countries with small and and dying populations who want to preserve their national identity and want to see foreigners assimilate more than they want to adapt. I don't believe that that can be reconciled with their economic, uh, you know, necessities and requirements. And I don't believe that it's realistic. I think there has to be some give and take.
1: Let's keep turning the globe around. That's indeed what you know what what we're doing with looking into the world ahead and the world in two thousand and seventeen. Give us some of the best Asian ideas that the West should adopt.
2: Well, it's funny you should ask, because my, my entire next book is called Technocracy in America. What I wanted to do was to actually canvas the world for the best practices and the effective management of an executive branch, legislative branch, judicial branch, and civil service. And I found examples actually from uh, Switzerland and Germany and Finland. But I also found things that America can learn from Singapore and from China, and I, uh, especially when it comes to the civil service, the ways in which you can have a competent, well-staffed bureaucracy that is meritocratically selected, that is utilitarian in its outlook, that is trying to deliver maximum welfare to the largest number of citizens as possible. And in an age where America is accused of just, you know, crony uh, capitalism and special interest-driven politics and elite selection of leadership, and where in Britain the civil service has been emasculated since Thatcher, uh, there's a lot that one can learn about how to have an effective state uh, from, uh, from up-and-coming uh, Asian societies. And most importantly, I found that, you know, Asian countries are learning more from other Asian countries than they are from the West. And so the really important thing observation here is that five billion people are veering in a more technocratic direction. And that's actually much better for them than to simply fall into this sort of traditional teleological view that we used to have in the West, which is that eventually all countries modernize and democratize and liberalize along the lines of the patterns that are established in the West. And the faster we wake up to that notion, the better we'll understand Asia.
1: We're putting all of our guests on the spot about the biggest changes that they think will come in 2017, the ones that will come and the ones that perhaps are predicted, but you think won't.
2: Well clearly deglobalization is the is the sort of almost the new conventional wisdom if you will. However, I'm still young enough to be kind of shocked that other people aren't saying what I am, which is I've heard it all before. 9/11, I heard people say that globalization is dead. World Trade Organization Doha round, people said globalization is dead. World financial crisis. Now we're in the realm of time that everyone should recall. People said globalization is dead. Well, surprise, here it is, right? Bigger and better than ever in many ways and expanding in ways that we can't even quantify when you think about the digital economy and the services economy. So I think that you know we will once again in 2017 or 2018 say, oh, that was just another phase where the explanations around the deceleration of trade growth and other metrics like cross-border financial. Flows were really owing to these kinds of shocks like the financial crisis or to just cyclical factors around, you know, commodities and so forth. And we'll wake up and we'll say, actually, the world is not deglobalizing. So the prediction that everyone has that's wrong is absolutely deglobalization.
1: And the prediction that you're prepared to nail your colors to the mast and we'll be back next year to check?
2: Without giving you a name, we will know who the Democrats are going to put forward to challenge Donald Trump in 2020. I don't know who it is, but here's my thought. If the Democrats don't know who it is by one year from now, that spells bad news for them in 2020.
1: Our thanks to Parag Khanna. And if you have any thoughts on globalisation or predictions for the year to come, do get in touch. We're on Twitter at Economist Radio, or you can send us emails to radio at economist.com. Now, while Parag was bullish on the prospects for globalisation, there's still reason for scepticism too. So I called up our free exchange columnist, Ryan Avent in Washington. First of all, Ryan, there's been a backlash in some parts of the world quite clearly against globalisation. But there are also signs that it's hard to constrain. So what do you think 2017 holds on that score?
4: Well, you're right. There are, there are forces moving in both directions. Uh, the, the sort of Broad long-term trend, I think, is for technology to make it easier to trade goods and services across borders. But at the moment, I think politics uh, is pointing uh, quite sharply in the other direction, uh, and that's that's most obvious in the United States, where um, uh, President Trump, who will take office on January twentieth, uh, has uh, said things that are quite you know quite skeptical about the benefits of trade. Uh, has warned that he will punish companies who move across borders. That. Uh, if he deems China to be manipulating its currency, he might put punitive tariffs uh, on its products. Uh, and all of these things uh, suggest that that protectionism could be on the rise uh, in 2017. Of course, the US isn't the only place uh, where, where interest in trade sort of seems to be moving backward. Uh, we also see that to some extent in Europe. Uh, with the Brexit vote, uh, it looks like uh, the government under Theresa May is going to be pursuing a more of a hard Brexit rather than sort of the liberal-minded Brexit where it's going to be open and free trade with everyone. And so that suggests that trade flows across Europe might, might be falling as well.
1: And how effective do you think Donald Trump is likely to be in limiting immigration and trade in the US?
4: Well, he will need to work with a Republican Congress that, at least on the trade side of things, has tended to be in favor uh, of more trade, of, of easier trade rules and things of that nature. Um, but I think there's actually quite a lot he can do on his own, on both immigration and trade. On immigration, he can do, as the Obama administration has been doing, uh, in terms of, of uh, being quite aggressive about deporting people who are, uh, who are found to be in violation of, of their visa rules. Uh, he could do quite a bit more, if he wanted to, to empower local law enforcement to, uh, to find people who have been living in the United States for quite some time uh, and, and to push them out of the country as well. President Obama has also done other things to, to make it easier for uh, the children of illegal uh, immigrants to attend university and things of that nature in the United States. A lot of that was done by executive order and could potentially be undone um, by by President Trump. On the trade side, within the sort of laws of that have been put in place to implement trade agreements, uh, he actually has quite a bit of room to put up uh, tariffs in, in some places in response to what he deems to be kind of unfair trade practices by one country or another. So if he thinks China's dumping steel, he has a lot of room to say, well, we're going to put trade tariffs up by 20% on steel. In terms of broad measures, he will probably need a lot of help from the Republican Congress to undo NAFTA, for instance. He can't just sort of unilaterally say we're out. He needs a, a, a bill had come through Congress for that.
1: One of the things we've been doing in these shows is turning the globe round, if you will, and, and looking at Asia and the role of Asia in 2017. What do you see as the role of that continent in stimulating global trade?
4: Well, over the last two decades, uh, the, the broader sort of Asian economy has become a critical part of the global economic infrastructure in a few ways. I mean, one, it's kind of this factory Asia where a huge amount of the sort of physical manufactured goods that, that we buy all over the world uh, are produced. At the same time, the big economies there, like China, uh, like India, have become much, much richer and they've become much more important as markets for goods as well, as places people want to sell. And so I think that if the United States steps back, that doesn't necessarily mean that global trade will collapse. I think it does mean it will become more regionalized. China will probably step in and try to, to uh, be more assertive in setting the trade agenda and in focusing on kind of its own you know, own backyard and in taking advantage of the U.S.'s step away to try to develop um, its, its sort of economic hegemony in the Asian region.
1: I'm going to put you on the spot for one prediction, the coming year on globalization and trade, something you think will happen or won't.
4: Well, I think the role of the dollar uh, in the, the global economy is going to, to prove really disruptive. Uh, and I think probably the place we'll see that most uh, most acutely is in relations between the U.S. and China. As the dollar rises, that makes American uh, exports less competitive and the you know imports from other places more competitive. It really hurts the you know the very factories that Trump said he wanted to help. That's going to le- force him, I think, to take steps to, to punish uh, or to try to punish China, and and uh, that could create quite a nasty uh, diplomatic dynamic. So I think that we will see quite uh, quite serious deterioration in US-China relations, simply because the rise of the dollar is, is, is forcing Trump to, to take more dramatic steps to limit imports from other countries.
1: Dollar dramas. Thank you very much, Ryan Avent. Thank you, Anne. Perhaps with so many problems in the Western democracies, we need to look elsewhere for a rosier picture. Our foreign editor, Robert Guest, always has his finger on the pulse of global affairs, and he joined me to talk about the places in the world he is optimistic about. So, Robert, where are the places in the world where we think that things might actually get better in 2017? I think you've
0: got to start with India. India is the big one. First of all, because cheap oil gives a a big tailwind to the the Indian economy. You know, it's a place with a lot of farmers, they use uh, oil uh, as a fuel for their tractors and also as fertilizer. You've also got some really interesting things going on there. It's It's a very young dynamic population. They're making a big shift of trying to push people into the formal economy through um, having the mass um, a biometric identity scheme, which has got more than a billion people enrolled now and far, far faster than anyone imagined they could. Um, and there's also this, this ambitious push to, to try and make people start uh, paying government benefits into proper bank accounts for poor people and trying to persuade companies to do the same thing and trying to make the economy more formal.
1: But as far as many of our readers are concerned, the last big story they heard was a bit of a mess about demonetization. Isn't that going to hold it back?
0: Yes, in the short term. So they did something extraordinarily bold or extraordinarily foolish, depending on how you want to look at it. They uh, decided to cancel uh, most of the uh, most important banknotes that are used and uh, cash is used for 98% of the transactions in India. So this is called a huge uh, short-term uh, economic hit. And that's that's going to take down growth by, well, we don't really know, but anything between, you know, half a percent and one and a half percentage points uh, this year. So that hasn't been handled very well. But the overall thrust amid all the chaos of, you know, people queuing outside banks to get cash, the overall thrust is, is very interesting. They are trying to get people away from the black economy uh, and into formal payment systems, which will make it much harder for bureaucrats to extract bribes from people and will make it much more frictionless for, for people to uh, be paid properly, to sign up to the various welfare schemes, to, to get a um, Access to credit, all those kind of things, and this is this is happening much faster than uh, a lot of people realise, uh, and is re- reason for being quite optimistic about India.
1: Any other countries on your radar? You think you're looking at a rosier future in 2017?
0: Well, I'd have to hope that Brazil would turn a corner because they've had the worst couple of years imaginable. I mean, the the recession has been as deep as anything since you know the 1930s. It's, it's been calamitous it has to get better simply because you know these things can't go on forever and they've they've had a change of management obviously the uh, the president Dilma Rousseff has been impeached and shoved out president Michel Temer is in charge now and he is you know more of a considered to be more economically competent there's good reason for thinking we've hit bottom and there's a chance that it's just going to start recovering now
1: and very important also for big trading partners particularly Argentina for Brazil to recover next year?
0: Well, it's very important for the whole of Latin America that Brazil recover, not only because it's, you know, the regional giant, but because they are, they're facing a huge headwind from, from Donald Trump in America because, I mean, that is that is a huge problem for Latin America uh, and more so up in the north where you've got sort of Mexico and Central America. But really, you know, they, they, they need Brazil to get better.
1: For a lot of people looking at some of the terrible things that, that have happened in the Middle East... Iraq. And the year ahead in Iraq is surely on the horizon. What do you think is going to happen there? I think
0: this is the year that Islamic State get kicked out of all their serious territorial possessions in Iraq. Uh, Probably not in Syria, um, although you never know, I mean, if they're up against a totally unrestrained Russia and an unrestrained uh, Donald Trump, maybe there too. But I think definitely in Iraq, uh, they cannot hold on in Mosul for very long. Um, the The forces arrayed against them from the Iraqi government, the the Shia militias, the Kurds um, you know nobody likes Islamic State. Um, people feel that they've 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 held this territory for too long. They're going to see a very serious defeat this year. And with luck, that will, that will have ripple effects around the world. It will uh, damage the Islamic State brand as far as all the, the jihadists who were looking to them as an example of, of victory and the possibility of setting up a caliphate. It will show that that's really not possible and it's not wanted by Muslims, among others. So you're going to see a big improvement on the ground there. Now, the, the big question then is, will the, the, the forces that, that retake Mosul do it? sensitively enough that they don't sow the seeds of another rebellion and that remains to be seen.
1: Robert, thank you very much. Now, the story of political instability in 2016 was often one of the established democratic order under threat. But might 2017 see established authoritarianism face similar challenges? One place where that has particular poignancy is Hong Kong, where local protesters are fighting against the authoritarian instincts of the Beijing government. Daniel, what sort of political mood do you think we'll see in Hong Kong in an important year to come, and what's at stake?
3: There's a don't rock the boat mentality of the establishment and there's a uh, often younger mood that says, why shouldn't we have um, full-blooded freedom? So I think that is going to play itself out in a rather tense way around the time of the election for the chief executive in March under rules that the government in China has dictated and uh, with candidates that have been vetted by Beijing.
1: I decided to hit the streets of Hong Kong and find out more for myself. 2017 marks a dramatic year ahead for Hong Kong, the 20th anniversary of the territory's handover from Britain to China, and fraught elections for a new chief executive taking place. Both are causes for nervousness in Beijing, as it monitors what's become of the umbrella protests of autumn 2014. Back then, mainly young demonstrators brought Hong Kong's financial district to a standstill in their thousands, wielding umbrellas as protection against pepper spray and tear gas dispensed by the authorities. The protests captured imaginations worldwide, but they didn't change much. The initial cause of resisting Beijing, imposing curriculum changes on Chinese schools didn't succeed and neither did demands for free selection of candidates to the upcoming elections. So, what do those who braved police clampdowns here in Hong Kong make of the movement now and its future in the eventful year ahead and beyond? I sought out Joshua Wong, one of the most prominent of the campaigners, just 18 at the time, to ask him how he sees the legacy of the Umbrella Movement for Hong Kong and for China. Joshua, where are you taking
5: it? The final 901. And whose
1: office is that?
5: Uh, is uh, the office of uh, Nathan Law, the legislator uh, of uh, the political party Demosysto. And he is the uh, umbrella movement student leader and now is still uh, a university student. And he is the youngest legislator in Hong Kong history. Now who? he's 23 years old, uh, three years older than me. <laughs>
1: Let's look back, if we could, to those umbrella protests. You were a famous, even younger face then, uh, standing there in the crowd. What did you hope to achieve, and how do you judge your success or failure?
5: What we hope to achieve is universal suffrage and democracy, which means everyone live in Hong Kong get the chance to vote in the chief executive election, instead of only allowing thousands and two hundred poor Beijing. Elite or tycoons, to vote in the chief executive election. That's our requirement.
1: And it didn't happen?
5: Uh, we have occupied for 79 days persist on the principle of peace and non violence. But the political system remains unchanged. Uh, Beijing still still ignore our requests and demand. But I would say that uh, the umbrella movement can still successfully raise the new generation political awareness and the international community to keep the eyes in Hong Kong
1: is self-determination the same as democracy? From Beijing's point of view, they're different things. Hong Kong has a lot of autonomy. It's a different feeling to mainland China. They wonder why Hong Kongers, or at least a proportion of the population, is ungrateful.
5: From Beijing's point of view, their definition on democracy may just allow Hong Kongers to have approximation of high-degree autonomy existing in name only. Is there a
1: tension in your mind, something to consider about the timeline of, of what you're doing. You could argue when something is going to go on for years and years, and it's unlikely that something called success could happen quickly. When do you think your success would
5: occur? Under the rule of presidency, the democratisation process in Hong Kong seems to move backward, will face more suppression and interference from Beijing. But I would say that fight for democracy is a long-term battle. I just remind myself, hope for the best and prepare for the worst. And it's a long-term battle. Fight until 2047. It will be the expiry date of joint declaration. And with the uncertainty of Hong Kong and being a youngster living in Hong Kong and love Hong Kong, it's my country. And I will continue to fight for the future.
1: What difference do you think it makes to this whole argument about China and Hong Kong having Donald Trump as President, as we'll have in two thousand seventeen, very soon.
5: Um, there's too much uncertainty for the foreign policy of Donald Trump, especially just like how he may have the intention to modify the U.S.-Taiwan relation in the recent day, and also um, will they, will the new government uh, implement uh, isolationism or protectionism and to uh, step backward? Uh, on the foreign policy or the development in Asia-Pacific, it would be the things that is still people considering and too much uncertainty. But I just think that it's necessary to protect the rule of law and judicial independence in Hong Kong. And it is not only beneficial for people living in Hong Kong and also beneficial for the investor, businessman, or um, some of the uh, business sector development. I just hope that Donald Trump, having a background of being a businessman, could know the importance of preserve and protect the rule of law and the judicial independence in Hong Kong.
1: What was your response to the decision by the president-elect Donald Trump to take that call from the Taiwanese president, which has ruffled a lot of feathers in Beijing? Were you encouraged by that, or did you think it was... Unnecessary.
5: It would be quite special or out of our expectation uh, to through Twitter to get this message. Yeah, it would be a new Twitter, maybe a new platform for us to know more about the president elected uh, statement or his personal statement. <laughs> yeah, um, I would say that um, Hong Kong and Taiwan are also facing the interference from Beijing government. And uh, even uh, we have different political system and cultural, or the history of democracy movement. But uh, it's necessary for us to support the self governance, autonomy, and the uh, unique position of Taiwan. For the relation of um, Hong Kong and Taiwan, are also facing the interference from Beijing today Hong Kong, tomorrow Taiwan, would be the um, general consensus for the activists in Hong Kong. Because two of the places, even with diverse background, history or political system, we also face the suppression from China government. And it's necessary to protect the uniqueness, differences, and the special position of Hong Kong and Taiwan in Asia.
1: Tell me a little bit, if you could, about how your own life has changed in the last two years. What's different from before you stood up there in the crowd and one of the major voices of the protests?
5: I started to organise uh, social movements since 2012 uh, because it's the uh, year for the high school student to against the brainwashing patriotic school education and result in uh, uh, Occupy Action with uh, 100,000 participants. So since 2012 till now, I stand in the front line and hope to push forward Uh, with the new generation to get back the autonomy and self-governance of Hong Kong. Uh, Now I'm still a full-time university student, major in politics, and it's uh, not an easy thing to balance the time for school and also um, the time for the work in civil society. But I would say that I think it's really, I think it's valuable and importance for more of the young generation and uh, come to fight for the future of our city.
1: You're certainly a politics student with more hands-on experience of politics than than most. And, uh, I wondered if anything has changed in the way that you think about protests and strategy for your movement.
5: Being an outsider, uh, f- Four or five years ago, I may imagine protests or demonstration are just some short-term uh, campaign and to hope to get the change immediately. It's just an ad hoc movement. But after involved in politics and social movement, I just remind myself, it's a long-term battle. And before the protests result in 100,000 of people, you need to pay your effort, put aside your leisure time, Get a sense and commitment, and to fight until the day we win in that movement.
1: Some things still affect your life, so that you're not always able to travel easily. You had a difficult time getting into tha- into Thailand. I don't think you did get into Thailand, did you?
5: Um, I've been blacklisted by Malaysia and Thailand government, and they have blacklisted me. And a um, few months ago, Thai government did uh, put me in a detention cell and uh, do not allow me to contact my lawyer and uh, parents and just uh, violating the basic human rights. And they just saying that they will not allow me to enter their country just because Thai and Thailand and Malaysia hope to maintain their good relationship with China.
1: So tell me, as you just go into 2017 yourself, what sort of year would you like to have, practically speaking, what do you think that you can achieve
5: 2017 is the 20th anniversary of Hong Kong over. It will be the time for us to continue to push forward the self-determination movement and on next year March will be the chief executive election. We just hope to feel that chance to be a platform for us to voice out that. After the end of umbrella movement without positive political reform, Hong Kong is still ready to keep on and fight for democracy, freedom and human rights.
1: Joshua Wong there. And with the new year fast approaching, I think we might do worse than leave the last word to the next generation. Our thanks to Joshua and to you for listening. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating,
0: pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive –